and continue our series, the title of which is on the screen behind me, Making Peace, How to Overcome Conflict. And for this series, we have a notebook that you'll want to turn to page 26 in if you have the notebook. And if you do not, then Gary has some and Larry has some. So if you need that, page 26 in your notebook, we'll get there in just a bit. But let me remind you of some things or tell you of some things that are, that are coming up before we get into the material itself. Two of these items are on the back cover of your notebook. So if you hold your finger at page 26 and you look on the back there at the bottom of the list of announcements, you see that on November 19, so two weeks from yesterday, we have our next newcomer's brunch at our house. And as the name suggests, that is a brunch and it is for those who are new. And you fall under the category of a newcomer if you've never been to the brunch. And we would love to have you come. And there's no program for that. Uh, I don't go through any material, so I'm not teaching anything. It is us getting to know you and you getting to know us in a setting that allows for more conversation than we can have when we're here together. So that's really all it's about. And uh, there's no pressure on you for anything. And I don't follow it up with anything. It's just brunch and getting a chance to enjoy each other's company. So we would love to, my wife and I would love to have you come, but we need to know how many people are coming. So for that, at the Resource Center, before you leave today, uh, let them know that you would like to come on Saturday, November 19, 10 a.m. at our house, and then we end at about noon. And they have a, uh, a, a card that has directions to our house, our phone number, a reminder about what time it is, all of that, okay? So before you leave today, see that table, they'll give that to you, and we'll put you on the list for our newcomer's brunch on Saturday the 19th. The next day, two weeks from today, is the last announcement at the bottom of the back cover of your notebook, and that is baptism. Our next scheduled baptism is two weeks from today, and the entire day will be devoted that morning to the observance of the two ordinances that Christ has given to his church, communion and baptism. Our 9.30 worship hour will be entirely devoted to communion, and then following that, we'll have our, our baptism. And uh, if you have never been baptized, this is something that Christ commands for all of his followers. And baptism, according to the Bible, means this, that you have actually been immersed in water to symbolize the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. So if that has never happened with you, then you have never been baptized as the Bible requires. There are, there are qualifications for those who are baptized. You have to have come to Christ in what we call salvation. So if you don't know what that is, but you want to obey Jesus, then see me. See me before you leave today. We'll set an appointment to talk about what it means to be a follower of Christ and how baptism fits into that, okay? And then we'll put you on the list, Lord willing, for our baptism in a couple of weeks. Whether you're getting baptized or not, we encourage you all to be here because it's always an exciting time and it's an encouragement to those who are being baptized. So the newcomer's brunch on the 19th, the next day, two weeks from today, is our next baptism. And this is not on the back cover, but it is in the program that you should have received when you came in today, our bulletin. And that is ladies, December 6th, Tuesday, December 6th, is the ladies' advent. And that is uh, going to be at uh, Huron Baptist in Flat Rock. And we have invitations for that at the Resource Center. We just got those today. So today's the first day that we've had those. So pick up some of those and use those to invite folks to the ladies' advent on December the 6th. 
We have been now four weeks, this is the fifth of six weeks in our series, Making Peace, How to Overcome Conflict. And to this point, let me just quickly review for you what it is that we've seen. We've seen that even in apparently irreconcilable conflict, that we can still benefit from an adverse relationship because we can still bring glory to God in the way we behave in the midst of that relationship. We can grow in that relationship, and we can serve others in the midst of that relationship. Glory and growth and service can all occur even in a relationship that's apparently, to this point, irreconcilable. Now, you can accomplish all of those things because, as we have seen, there are some things you know in the midst of a difficult conflict, a difficult relationship. And three of the things you know are, first of all, God's purpose. You know that God has as his purpose in all things that he allows, including adverse circumstances, and those include adverse relationships. In all that God allows, he has as his ultimate purpose that he receive glory. You know God's purpose, but you also know your opponent better than he or she knows themselves. And the reason you know them better than they know themselves is because you've read a book about them. And it's got the stuff in there that's wrong with them and that's wrong with you and me. And so you know some things about them. Romans chapter 1 tells you about people who are not followers of Jesus. All who are not followers of Jesus have these three characteristics. That they know God. All people know that there is a God, the Bible says. And that's why only the fool, quote, only the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. Romans 1 says that they literally knew the God, it says. But they glorified him not as God. They know God. But then it also tells us, secondly, about all people outside of Christ, that they don't want to know God. They know God. They know there is this God. But relationship with God is too painful because there's something wrong with us. And the Bible calls that sin. They know God. They don't want to know God. And as a result of not knowing God and wanting to run from God, the third thing Romans 1 says, it renders all people foolish as fools. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. So the person that you're engaged with who doesn't want peace in this relationship, you know them better than they know themselves. They know God. They don't want to know God. And that has rendered them them foolish. It means then that they can no longer exercise the kind of power over you that they've exercised to this point. They drive you crazy. They can push your buttons. And now they can't push your buttons anymore because, and this is the other thing that we saw, and that is that your buttons are attached to your heart. And you can actually disconnect the wiring from the buttons to the heart. So that then when they're pushing the buttons, nothing's happening anymore. And it drives the opponent crazy that they can't have the effect that they used to have because you've come to realize that the conflict that goes on between you and others on the outside actually starts within you in your heart on the inside. The Bible teaches that our hearts, the center of who we are, is active. The heart is active. It's not passive, waiting to be filled up, but it already, we already come into this world with an active heart and a sinful heart that needs to be changed. Even in relationships where we're the victim or where we're the offended party, it is not just a matter of what's been done to you, but what you do with what's been done to you. 
So to be sure, there are these times where we're in relationship and someone is the offender and I'm the offended. But then the question is, how is my heart going to react? What am I going to do with what's been done to me? And my heart's active in all of that as well. The reason that conflict reigns in our hearts and issues forth in our relationships with one another on the horizontal plane, the reason that's the case is because there's a problem on the vertical plane between us and God, and we saw that last week that the biggest problem that all of us has is not the conflict that we have with other people. The first and largest and most significant conflict we have is the one that we enter the world with with regard to the God who made us. We come into the world separated from God because of our sin. Peace with God. Internal peace with God is possible, hear this, even when interpersonal peace with others is not possible. I can still have internal peace, even when I'm in conflict with someone who refuses to cooperate. And therefore, at least to this point, interpersonal peace with that individual is impossible, but in the midst of all of that, I can still have internal peace with God. And we saw that the way that that happens is through something called the gospel, the good news. And the good news, the gospel, empowers us. It empowers us to see God and to see ourselves and to see others truly, accurately. We see God in the gospel, in the good news, in his love and in his grace. And now having seen the love and the grace of God and the good news of the gospel that we embrace and that begins the change of our hearts from the inside out, having seen that and experienced that, now I'm empowered to extend that love and grace to others who are just like me. You see, it's not just now these other people and how bad they are. Now I have come to realize that I'm the needy recipient of the love and the grace of God, and now I can be a dispenser of that love and grace into the lives of others, even those who are opposed to me. So I see God clearly. And in the gospel, I see myself clearly. And I can look at myself and deal with the good, the bad, and the ugly. And all of us has it. And I don't have to keep covering it and acting like it's better than it really is. You see, one of the reasons we don't make progress in our conflicts, in our relationships, one of the reasons is that one or both parties refuses to see themselves as they truly are. But the gospel empowers me to see myself clearly and deal with it clearly. This is the way I put it. I don't have to keep covering it because Jesus has covered it. And see, if you don't recognize that, if you don't recognize that Christ has covered all of your sin, then you will find some vehicle, some way to minimize it, some way to try to cover it yourself, some way to avoid admitting it truly and accurately. So you see God clearly in the gospel, and you see yourself clearly in the gospel, and then you see others Clearly in the gospel as well, they are the needy that require the grace and the love that you yourself have received from God. 
seeing myself, seeing yourself clearly means that I can then confess. I can start singing about myself. I don't mean literally singing. I mean telling the truth. It just all starts tumbling out now. I can, and the word is confess, and in our lesson today we're going to give a definition of what confession is a bit later. But for now, here's what confession means for you and me. It means deal with it. I can now deal with it. So notice at the top of page 26. As God opens your eyes to see how you have sinned against others, he simultaneously offers you a way to find freedom from your past wrongs. It is called confession. Now, many never get this freedom because they never fully deal with their issues. Let me give you an illustration, give you an example of this. Over the years, I've counseled people who are in conflict with their children, perhaps children that are still in the home or children that have grown and they're out of the home, but they're in conflict with their children. Perhaps that applies, applies to you now. I've dealt with lots of people like that. And the situation is this, that my relationship with my, my child or children has not gone according to plan. It has not gone the way that I expected it to go. And as they get a bit older, perhaps their junior high years, their, certainly their, their high school years and young adult years, now I see it. I see that this train has not gone in the direction that I wanted it to go. Well, now what do I do? Well, most of us begin analyzing ourselves. And we say, where did, how many, how many parents say this, where did I, right, go wrong? And that's actually a good thing for us to do, to do this self-analysis, to say, where did I go wrong? But I see the consequences of where I have gone wrong in someone that I love so deeply that it's very difficult for me to admit that I played a role in what's happening with them. And so here's what we do. Because it's so painful, we seek to minimize it or to otherwise legitimize it or to strike out and to blame, to blame others. You know, if we had a better youth group at church, it wouldn't have been like this. If we had a better church at all, I've known people to leave churches. As a matter of fact, I've known people to leave this church for this very thing. Start to see the results of what's happening, what I did or failed to do, but I can't. It's too painful. I love these people too much, and I can't face it, and therefore I minimize it, therefore I rationalize it, therefore I begin to, to blame others. I can't handle the idea that I may have hurt them, and I may have hurt them for life. And if you think about that, and certainly if you're in that, and I think about it as a parent, that would be indeed a very, very difficult thing to face. That perhaps because of some of the things I did or failed to do, my child is in this situation. And I may have harmed them for a long time. How do you face that? But hear this, dear friend. 
Even if your child, grown or still at home, is in that situation, they are really in the same place that they have always been, in need of the grace of God. That's where they were 10 years ago, and that's where they are right now. And even though you may have regrets, and even though you may wish it were different, and even though perhaps it should be different, it is the grace of God in their lives that's most needed. Now get this. The grace of God in their lives means that you begin to be truthful with yourself and with them. Put it another way, that you stop covering it. That you confess it, that you deal with it. And the more you minimize, the more you rationalize, the more you blame, the worse it will be. Your child, and whatever relationship, I'm just using that as an example, but whatever relationship it is, is in need of the grace of God and to the extent that you have been culpable in that relationship, that grace is extended through your willingness to deal with it or to confess. You will not have freedom from the feelings of guilt until you deal fully with the facts of guilt. You see, we want to avoid the feelings of but we often don't want to deal completely and fully and honestly and accurately with the facts that have led to that guilt. And I'm telling you, friend, you won't have the feelings until you deal with the facts. And dealing with the facts is what confession means. So take a look at page 26. As God opens your eyes to see how you've sinned against others, he simultaneously offers you a way to freedom from your past wrongs, confession. Many people never experience this freedom because they've never learned how to confess their wrongs honestly and unconditionally. Instead, they use words like these. I'm sorry if I hurt you. Let's just forget the past. Well, I suppose I could have done a better job. I guess it's not all your fault. <laughs> and these, all of these phrases are what I summarize in a category called weasel words. You're trying to weasel out of your full responsibility because you're unwilling to confess, and you are unwilling to confess because you have not embraced the full ramifications of the gospel. You don't have to keep covering it. Jesus has covered it. These token statements, last sentence there, second to the last sentence, rarely trigger genuine forgiveness and reconciliation. If you really want to make peace, ask God to help you breathe grace by humbly and thoroughly admitting your wrongs. So let's see that together. Starts with embracing the gospel, which means I must do this Bible word, and I'll explain what it means, but you see it there in Roman numeral one. Repentance. It's a much used but little understood word. And we say there, first of all, that repentance is more than a feeling. When I repent, what I'm doing, you see the definition in be there, it's a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. So when I now change my thinking, 
about God, about myself, and about others. That's what repentance is. Now I'm willing to face my wrongs in this. I have a different view. I'm no longer covering it. I've changed my, 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 my mind has been changed by God in repentance. It's literally what the word means, a change of mind. And when I do that, it may involve feelings, but feelings are not essential to repentance. As a matter of fact, in 2 Corinthians, you might jot this down, 2 Corinthians chapter 7 it speaks of two kinds of repentance. One of them that involves sorrow, but even with this sorrow, it's not true repentance. Let me read for you what 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 8 says. The one who wrote this letter, 2 Corinthians is a letter written to some people, had written a previous letter to them and says this, If I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while, yet now I am happy. Not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Now notice this. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Two kinds of repentance. Worldly sorrow and godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And what we tend to do is define repentance primarily in terms of feelings, but the truth is people can have ill feelings, bad feelings, negative feelings about a situation, not because they are truly repentant, but they're sorry, sorrowful that what? I got caught. That's one. Or I'm sorrowful, I'm sorry, I feel bad that things between us or the situation is as lousy as it is. There are lots of reasons for which we could be sorrowful, feel bad about a situation, but feeling bad about it, being sorrowful, does not necessarily mean we're repentant. But then there's godly sorrow. That leads to repentance. I'm not only saddened by the fact that we're estranged from each other, that the, the situation is difficult, that problems have occurred. I'm truly sorry about that. But I'm most of all sorrowful that I have sinned in this situation. And that the most important relationship I have is not the horizontal one with you. It's actually with God. You see an example of this. We won't turn there for sake of time, but... You see a great example of this in Psalm number 51 in the Bible. Psalm number 51. In Psalm 51, if you were to look at the top of Psalm 51, there's a superscription there. And it says that this is a psalm of David after David was confronted by the prophet Nathan regarding his, David's sin. Now you remember David's sin. Commits adultery. Has the husband of the woman with whom he committed adultery killed to cover it up. He has sinned in a big way, right? But then you go to Psalm number 51, and in the first four verses of Psalm 51, you notice how many times the pronoun I is used. David is not blame shifting. He is not minimizing. He is saying, it is I, it is me, it is my transgression and my sin and what I have done. And it's ever before me, he says. 
And then in verse 4 of Psalm 51, he says this, quote, To God, against you and you only have I sinned. What? Uriah might have something else to say about that. This is the guy that was killed. Hey, what about me? Or what about the woman with whom he, that he took advantage of? Or what about the nation that he was supposed to be leading? He sinned against all of them. But what he's saying is, ultimately, and most importantly, the one that I've sinned against is God. And he is sorrowful. It's godly sorrow that leads to repentance now. Why? Because he understands the depths of what he has done. He sees God in his holiness clearly. He sees him in his sinfulness clearly. And now he can be more gracious to others with whom he's in conflict. Repentance is more than a feeling. And it results in a change of direction. My thinking now has been changed about God, about myself, and then in turn about others. And that has effects now externally. Beginning with the way I talk, my words. Page 26, repentance issues forth in changing the way you talk. If I'm repentant, if I'm now going in a different direction, I'm no longer going to use my tongue to injure. And here's some of the ways that we injure. We have five of them listed that we'll go through. But I'm no longer going to use my tongue that way. Now, here are some of them. The first one is slander. The word slander in the Bible literally means this, to talk down. When I slander, I am talking someone down. So I'm saying things, I'm injecting things into a conversation, either to them or to others about them, that's designed to talk them down, put them in a negative light. Slander, to talk down. These are malicious words about someone else. And the word slander or slanderer is used 34 times in the Bible of Satan. That's how serious slander is. Now, I have a confession to make. Since we're talking about confession, let me confess. You see the four types of injurious speech that we have listed on page 26, a fifth on page 27. You have five of these listed. And in some of these, I've got the wrong definition with the wrong word. Now, I'm really sorry that happened. And if I had a better secretary, it would have never happened. You know, and, and if you guys paid me more, I'd have more time to do a better job. <laughs> you see how we make stuff up. The truth is, I'm just a bonehead. And in my boneheadedness, I've got the wrong definition with the wrong word in a couple of these. So I'm confessing to you that I screwed this up. And so I want to make it right by giving you the right definition of slander. You see, slander is not lying, exaggeration, telling half-truths, destroying trust. I mean, it might include that, but that actually goes under falsehood. So what's slander? Slander is malicious words about another talking them down, malicious words about another. And what is falsehood? 
Falsehood is what I have under slander, lying, exaggeration, half-truths, destroying trust. I'm sorry. Really, I'm really sorrowful about this. So you've got slander, you've got falsehood. Under falsehood, please note, this includes nonverbal communication in which you communicate something false about a person or a situation. We've all seen this happen. We've probably all done it. You know, something is said and then we just, a statement is made and we want to indicate that's not exactly true. I know something you don't. And so we just kind of raise our eyebrows, get a smirk, walk away. We've intentionally communicated something false. A true statement may have been made, but we give nonverbal communication to indicate that it was not true after all. Gossip. And this one I got right. It includes betraying a confidence or discussing unflattering personal facts about a person, especially with someone who's not part of the problem or part of the solution. And then there's worthless talk. It's just saying what springs to mind, not being careful in what we say, contrary to Matthew chapter 12 and verse 36. Matthew 12 and verse 36. Jesus said, Men will give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. Last week when we looked at Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. We looked at that during our 930 hour. If you were here, you remember I said, if you live to be 75 and you talk for 70 of those 75 years, then on average you will have spoken 409,800,000 words. And Jesus says we will give an account for every careless word spoken. And then top of page 27, grumbling and complaining. And unfortunately, you have the definition of slander there. But what is grumbling and complaining? It's talk that discourages. Talk that discourages rather than encourages. So as I repent now, as I think differently about God, about myself, and about others, my heart has been changed, and that issues forth now in the way I talk. And I no longer use my words to injure, but rather I use my words to bless. And as it relates to my relationships with others, it means I'm now willing to confess in order to speak grace into this relationship. Now here's your definition of confession. I said it means deal with it. Here's literally what it means in Scripture. The word confess means literally this, to say the same thing. And it means that I say the same thing about myself and about my part, my, my role in this situation that God says about it. Say the same thing. Or to put it another way, no weasel words. I say what God says about it. But I'm able to say what God says about it because I'm able to face it. Why am I able to face it? Because Jesus has covered it. 
And so I don't have to minimize and rationalize and blame shift. So here are what are called the seven A's of confession. As we confess, as we say the same thing about our culpability, about our sin, about our offense that God says about it, we address everyone who's involved, everyone who's been affected. It may be one person. It may be your entire family. Your entire family may be on edge all the time. And ladies, I'm not just picking on you, but you all know the saying, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. But, you know, maybe the guys as well. You know, he's in one one of his moods. Just stay away from him. Okay? So everybody clear out. We're going shopping. We know one of the things that makes you mad is we spend money, but we got to get out of here. We'll deal with that later. So he's in a mood. She's in a mood. Everybody clear out. So it may be that my own selfishness and my own focus upon myself and what I want that's rooted in my heart, we saw that in previous weeks, that that has issued forth in now misery for everybody else. And so who do I need to confess to? I need to confess to everybody that's affected. Maybe one person, it may be my whole family, it may be my office. <laughs> Whoever has been involved, everyone who has been adversely affected by me and my sin needs to be addressed. Secondly, avoid statements like if, but, and maybe. Don't try to excuse your wrongs. We saw them on the previous page, if I've hurt you. I know I did that, but if you weren't such a jerk, that usually doesn't help. Maybe I came off a little strong. (laughs) No, did you come off strong if you did say that? Don't say maybe I did. Say, I did. This is what I did. Address, avoid, if, but, and maybe admit specifically. You know, I know sometimes I'm hard to get along with. Well, it's not very specific, is it? Look, I sin against you when I scream and yell because you haven't cleaned your room. Specifically, this is what I did to you. I know that I have made life miserable in this household because I have placed my own interests above your interests. And that's seen in a number of ways. Let me give you three of them. And you specifically lay out letting the people know that have been injured by what you do that you get it. Admit specifically, acknowledge the hurt, fourthly. This person has been injured by, the very word offend means there's someone who's been offended. Presumably I've sinned against someone. This someone, therefore, has been hurt by this. And I need to show that I get that and that I care about that. And so I've not only done that, but I know my doing that has made it difficult for you. And you've had to tiptoe around me. And had to take into account my, my feelings my selfishness in ways that you shouldn't have had to. And I know that that's, that's hurt you. I know when I've said these things to you, it's hurt you. And accept the consequences. This is where turning this situation and this person over to the grace of God is very, very important. 
Because one of the consequences is this situation, this relationship, and perhaps this person in the case of a parent-child is not where I wanted them to be. That's one of the consequences. I have to, I have to accept that. But thanks be to God, in his grace, he can work where I cannot. And so I can say that. I can accept the consequences as a result of this. Our relationship is not what it should be before God. And we are strained and perhaps even estranged from each other. I accept those consequences. If I've stolen something or if I've broken something, then I might even have to make restitution. To the extent that I'm able to make restitution, confession means I do that. Then sixthly, alter your behavior. Change your attitudes and actions. This can only be done through the power of the gospel that we saw last week. But if I, if I say I believe all of these things, but there's no change in my behavior, it belies my words, doesn't it? And so the God who tells you to say the same thing about it that he does, to confess to those that we have wronged, this same God will empower you to make changes to show the individuals that you've harmed that you're serious about it. And then lastly, you ask for forgiveness. Now next week is our final week in this course. I'll be gone. Pastor Matt is going to deal with the final, I think, four pages. And forgiveness is the main topic. So he'll be dealing with that next week. I will just say this for now. That there's a difference between forgive, will you forgive me and I'm sorry. And what I tell, what I practice and what I tell, we tell our daughters and what I tell counselees is, sorry is for accidents. Forgiveness is for sins. You see, if I accidentally bump into you, that's an accident, and I say, I'm sorry, or excuse me. I haven't sinned against you by bumping into you. But if I sin against you, now I need to seek your forgiveness. And I encourage you to use that very wording. So I have sinned against you in this way or in these ways, and I am asking you to forgive me. Will you forgive me? Next week we'll see what forgiveness looks like. Now, having done that, if you look at page 28, having confessed, having been honest with yourself, and then in turn with those that you've affected, now and only now are you in a position to do what's said at the top of page 28, seek to gently restore. Because this relationship is harmed, and I have played a role in it, and I've come to recognize that, and so I've repented and I've confessed as we've outlined, and I've asked you for, to forgive me. But I want to see the relationship restored. And it may well be that there's stuff the other party or parties have done to contribute to this as well that needs to be dealt with. Now, this is the part we really like to get to. Ah, we're finally getting somewhere. Now I can deal with what they did wrong. Lord knows there's plenty of that. But you only do this after you first dealt with the log that's sticking out of your head. Isn't that what Jesus said? You know, you want to go after the speck in your brother's eye, but you've got a beam sticking out of your head. And doesn't everybody else's sin always look like a beam to us? Our own sin looks like a speck. 
And their sin always looks like a log. So you deal with your own sin first and thoroughly. And then and only then, if there's something to be dealt with with the other party, then you seek to do what we have on page 28. I would recommend as well that there often be a time lag between those. I mean, here's what we do. Okay, fine. Took that stupid class from pastor. He told me I had to do this, so I go through. And I write it out, and I say all the stuff. And I mean it. I mean, I mean it, sort of. And then I say, okay, you forgive me? Cool. Now, you got another hour and a half? Because I've got some stuff to go through with you. And now I want to deal with you. Now that I have humbled myself before you, now I'm in a position to unload on you. So I recommend there be a time lag. Now there's my stuff, now let's get to your stuff, the good part. There's a time lag where I actually show the fruit of this repentance. And that's a Bible phrase, fruit of repentance. Luke chapter 3 and verse 8. Fruit of repentance. Now, then I come and I seek to see this relationship reconciled and restored. That means confronting. Now, what are the circumstances of confrontation? You must approach someone when they believe you have wronged them. You may approach someone when you believe they have wronged you. Now, notice, you must approach someone when they believe you've wronged them. The responsibility is yours for you to go to them if they believe you've wronged So we've talked about that. And then I say you may approach someone when, they believe, uh, when you believe they've wronged you. Someone has done something to me. It doesn't mean I have to confront it. I may, but I may not. I may choose to overlook it. And 1 Corinthians chapter 6 in your Bible speaks of times when we simply overlook the offense. And we have criteria for when you should and when you shouldn't at the bottom of page 28. And what is that criteria? Ask yourself, is what happened in the situation dishonoring to God? If it's something that's dishonoring to God because God's reputation is most important, then I want to try to help this person with that, and thus it's going to need to be confronted. Is it something that is a passing one-time thing, or is it something that is damaging our relationship in an ongoing way? That's not good for any of us. It's not good for the witness of Christ. Therefore, it needs to be dealt with. If I'm the only person who is offended by this, if I'm the only person who is hurt by this, then perhaps I can simply overlook the offense. But the question is, is it hurting others? And is what they are engaging in, whether it's something they're doing to me or around me, something that is hurting the person who's perpetrating it? And if that's the case, because of love for them, I need to go to them. But if I go to them having done all the stuff I talked about, you're now going to have a foundation and a context in which, hopefully and prayerfully, now this is a person who's open to listening to you because they've seen you do the very thing you're trying to ask them deal with now in their own life. Now, friends, I'm, we, we'll finish in just a moment. But let me give you the most important thing about reconciling relationships. Sometimes people use the name Jesus, the name Christ, God's name, very loosely. 
I have made a habit in my own life of never saying, and I'm going to say it so you know what I never say. But I never say things like, oh my God. I, I try to never have the word God come out of my mouth unless I'm addressing God or I'm speaking some truth about God. Same, with, same thing with the, word G, the name Jesus or Christ. Sometimes we use these very flippantly, and we'll say, and again, I'm just telling you what people say sometimes, for Christ's sake. You ever hear that? You ever say that? But you know there's a very legitimate sense in which that can be used. For Christ's sake. For the sake of Christ. For the sake of his reputation. For the sake of his honor. We are willing to do what is difficult personally. We're willing to go to people and open ourselves up to people and to say to people, God has shown me my heart and I see myself in ways that I haven't seen before. And even though it's difficult and even though it's embarrassing, for the sake of Christ, it's what must be done. And so does Christ's sake, does Christ's name, does Christ's honor, does Christ's glory matter to you? If it matters to you, then you'll be willing to do the hard thing. Repent. Confess. And then over time, as you show the fruit of that repentance, approach someone. It may be difficult, but I'm willing to do the hard thing, to approach them about reconciling our relationship. For Christ's sake, may that be done in our relationships. Let's pray together.